Welcome to Where the Map Turned Blue podcast, presented by Sword Fishing Products, a company built for people who are insanely crazy about fishing. Today on the podcast, we have John Fitzgerald, the third generation president of Saunders Yacht Works. Saunders is a full service yacht service center that was started in 1959 as a commercial vessel service business in Mobile, Alabama. The commercial service business revolved around keeping the tugboats on Mobile Bay humming 24-7 because as they say, time is money. This business would keep a stock of complete engines ready to do a full swap on a tugboat. The engines would be loaded up onto the back of a flatbed truck and driven to where the boat that needed a new engine was stopped. The servicemen would then do a full swap of the engine in the tugboat and just about anything else that the customer needed at the time. Saunders calls it the baker's dozen salesmen where they would always provide an extra service above and beyond what the customer would expect. So the business started by the Saunders family in 1959. We were in Mobile. I say we, (laughs) I wasn't around in 1959. But my wife's grandfather was an engine man from uh, the U.S. Navy, served and then came back to his hometown and started a business basically offering service to commercial boats at the docks in the Port of Mobile. And what did that look like? in 1959 well uh he was uh, the original i don't know baker's dozen salesman you know go find out what people need if they need 12 or something give them 13. so we always thought about the baker's dozen we want to do a little bit extra for the customer he wasn't as focused on the engine side until uh the mid 60s and they started he and my father-in-law signed the first authorized dealership with Detroit Diesel in somewhere around 67, 68. The late 60s was the beginning of the diesel engine service shop in Mobile. And that business really built. So when I joined the company, uh, my father-in-law was the president of the company. The, um, my wife's grandfather at that time was deceased. And they had built authorized dealerships for Detroit Diesel, Caterpillar, and Cummins. They were working on uh, engines all over the southeast U.S. and a little bit in uh, Central and South America. Basically, wherever commercial engine service was needed. In that industry, they have swing engines. So you keep an inventory of used engines because if an engine goes down on a tugboat, as opposed to bringing it into dry dock, they just want to keep on schedule so you take an engine to them you pull the engine out you put the operating engine in and then you bring that core back and rebuild it in the shop so that you keep your core inventory in place so that you're able to keep that customer running that's really a a 24 7 when the customer says there is no uh, you were going to do this no matter what it takes in the commercial business they really mean that because they're losing money on a contract if that boat's not running so that was the business that grew out of the founding in mobile when i joined there was 120 employees in three locations for saunders engine company one of the locations was here at the beach uh, doing business as saunders yacht works and it was focused on recreational marine 
I think it was probably the late 90s when they took the first lease at Orange Beach Marina to add the boatyard. So my father-in-law saw that the response to that really professional engine service business could be expanded into the boatyard. He always said at the time that he entered, the boatyard was more of a flip-flop industry. You go into the yard and you might see guys walk around in flip-flops doing some work, but there wasn't as much of a professional approach. He brought the idea of a professional service and a full service to the boatyard side so that a customer could come in, get their exterior work done, get their structural work done, engine work done, the vessel systems, all of the services that a customer would need. Uh, so in 1998, signed the first lease at Orange Beach Marina with the 60-ton lift there. You know, we've been operating that facility ever since. In, I'll say, the mid, early to mid-2000s, we saw that boats were getting bigger than that 60-ton lift could handle. So we had longtime customers that were passing us by because their boats were getting too big for our lift capacity. So we started looking for expansion room. The facility where we are right now, we leased from the city of Gulf Shores in 2005. So we knew we wanted to be on the intercoastal waterway for the depth, and we knew we wanted a bigger uh, footprint. So we leased this property. The building we're sitting in right now, we opened in 2009. We hauled our first boat in 2012. So it just takes a little while to, for these things to build up. You know, and you've been here since 1999, is that correct? Uh, it, in Orange Beach and Gulf Shores, in this community, yes. And uh, I'm trying to envision what it took for a company to move from Mobile, and we brought everything down here. And in my mind, when you were going, telling me that people would replace an entire engine, are they putting these engines on the back of a truck? <laughs> and they're hauling this down with every part every nut and bolt that needed to be replaced. How was that happening up in Mobile? So uh, I'll answer your first question first. The, the business in Mobile sold in 2008. So this was an operating branch of that business. And in 2008, Kirby Corporation bought the commercial part of our business. That shop still exists. It's still there. The Kirby service group is called Marine Systems. So Marine Systems exists all along the Gulf Coast, several locations, and one of them is our old shop in Mobile. Uh, but the, the second part of your question, the engine would be fully built, and it would go on the back of a truck, flatbed. You'd take it out to the boat. A lot of times you'll see tugboats tied up to the side here. You're swinging that engine because the boat itself, sometimes the truck comes with the, the, you know, use the crane on the truck, but those boats are set up to move the equipment off. They may have their own ability to get that engine out. And then, yeah, that engine gets set to the side. The other engine gets put on the boat, fastened down. You hook up the water, the fuel, fire it up, keep on going. I mean, the uh, idea of that industry is built around service companies that keep swing engines available for them so that if they have a catastrophic failure, I mean, if it's a repair that you can do, you do the repair on the existing engine. But if it needs a new engine or it needs a replacement engine, you swing it. And you would take those used engines that needed repair and bring them back to 
um, I would say a repair shop. Right. And they would fix them there, and then that would go back into your inventory. Right. Yeah, we we operated our own engine rebuild shop. So in Mobile, we had probably 30 mechanics, and 10 of them would be field service, and 20 of them were in component and engine rebuild. So we rebuilt the components, the marine gears, and the engines that we kept in our inventory. Sometimes, for our biggest customers, they had their own inventory, so we were rebuilding their engines, or we would rebuild our engines. But it's the idea of the core return is a big part of that business. Like if I'm getting a, a, a damaged engine back, that has enough value that it's a significant discount for the engine I just sold you. The most similar experience that we all have in that aspect is batteries. If you buy a new battery for your car, you always want to give them the old one back because they want the core. They'll give you 30 bucks or 40 I don't know what that core value is. But you always, in, the, in that industry, return the core when you bring an engine you, you're pulling the core out to take back and rebuild and resell mm-hmm. and um you know we brushed up on a little bit of your history <laughs> be, before we came okay, here to make good. a little turn of the podcast so Beautiful. you started off as an educator correct and i would assume you probably had a great career in education uh, what pulled you away from that career in education to now a career at a boatyard? Yeah, well, I hope I had a great career in education. I, had, <laughs> I certainly had a lot of fun. The idea that I wanted to be a teacher was always with me. I went to college to pursue a degree in education. I thought that I also wanted to be a high school basketball coach for the rest of my life. And I started Uh, at a junior high school, teaching math, coaching basketball, coaching football, had great experience there. Pretty early, I wanted a leadership role. I wanted to have a bigger influence on a a whole school or a larger group of, of people involved. I also really enjoyed the idea of professional development in teaching, so helping other teachers find ways to get better. And I pursued a degree in administration. So I got my first assistant principal's job when I was 28. Uh, I was um, in Southern Virginia at the time, but my degree program was at UVA, and that's where I met my wife. And so uh, we got married when I was 30. I knew she was an only child and that her family was in Mobile, Alabama. (laughs) And... I figured there was probably a pretty good chance that we would end up uh, in Alabama, but we we were um, very happy with the idea of getting our kids closer to her parents. I'm very fortunate to be one of eight children. Um, my dad's been deceased a long time, but my mom's still alive. And moving away from her was hard in Virginia, but knowing that I had other siblings up there close by made it easier. My wife, being an only child, getting her closer to her parents plus our kids uh, close to their grandparents was a lot of the motivation for moving down here. I worked in the Mobile County school system for a year as an assistant principal. Um, It took a little while for my father-in-law to get to know each other well enough uh, for me to um, go to work for him. So I I thought one funny story related to that. He... (laughs) offered the job to my wife 
two years before I came on board because he was really interested in the family succession. And she was, we just had our second child and she's a, a amazing stay at home mother. And so she really wanted to do that. She did not want to go back into the workforce outside of the home. And so I wrote to him at the time, there was no, and maybe there may have been email, but I don't think we used it very much. There certainly wasn't texting or anything like that. I, mean, I sat down and wrote him a formal letter asking if I would be considered for the job. It was a human resource manager job, and he turned me down. Uh, <laughs> but two years later, after we had moved to Mobile, and like I said, we got to know each other a little better, and the business had grown uh, to the point where they wanted to add a human resource manager, and he offered me the job. So that's how I switched. I, I kind of had an idea at that time. One of the things I, I didn't like about education was the bureaucracy. You have so much of, like if you're in a leadership role in a school, it's wonderful. And I had great experience in schools, but dealing with the central office and some of the rules was getting frustrating for me. And I saw this small business environment where my father-in-law and his upper management and his middle management. I mean, they made decisions. They made things happen. It was exciting. I saw people that were very motivated to be part of that team and a sense of, hey, we're all working together for a common goal around what he had built. And I was always, after I got to know more about the business, I'm a, I'm a people person. So I had to learn about the engines, I had to learn about the boats, but I was always kind of engaging with the people that were around the, the company. And one thing that was true then and is true today, we have wonderful people that work here. So you just couldn't help but kind of be excited about what they were doing. And what year was it that you joined Saunders as a human resources manager? Uh, in 99. And we're now 25 years, 24 years yep. from there. That's correct. At that time, what were you looking for as far as a skill set for somebody that was going to come work on a yard or work on a boat in 1999 is probably a total different skill set than somebody that's coming to work on the boat now. What, what were you looking for at that time to uh, expand into? So the biggest difference, that's a great question. Um, the biggest difference was you tended to have a lifetime relationship with your employees. So if you could hire somebody as a young apprentice, and we were primarily looking for diesel engine mechanics, we had the crafts part of Saunders Yacht Works, but the diesel engine mechanic in the commercial side and in the recreational side was still in high demand. We had the location in Mobile, we had a location in Panama City, Florida, and we had the location in Orange Beach. So we spent a lot of time in schools. It's perfect for me. I loved being in that environment and talking to the instructors, whether it be at the high school or the trade school level, trying to find people that could enter the trade that were teachable and would stay for 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. The biggest difference now is, you know, they say a young person probably has five or six stops in their career. So it, you don't typically have that engagement for such a long time, but yet the expectation for bringing somebody into the culture is very similar. So we got engaged faster. <laughs> 
<laughs> we got to decide faster if this person's for us, and we got to challenge them faster. They don't have, you know, my my managers today will say, "Oh my gosh, I was an apprentice for five years, and I did everything that the boss told me to do." And I, if they said stay till twelve o'clock, I just want a job. I'd stay till twelve o'clock. Well, it's different now, right? And so, people entering the workforce have different set of expectations. It's a challenge, but it's actually good for us. We have to respond more quickly. We have to make sure they're getting what they need to grow in the field, and we've got to give them a reason to stay with us. And what skills would you say are in need in this day and age um, in terms of how technology's evolved? Mm -hmm. Boats have gone from being an average of 55 feet, maybe even less than that, to over 60, 70 feet, what's that skill set that would be in most high demand for someone that was going to come work for Saunders in this day and age? So the trade skill, so whether it be mechanical, carpentry, fiberglass, paint, they have to have some knowledge of the trade skill. So you need to know the basics of a combustion engine. Uh, you don't have to know everything about how it pushes a boat or how it runs in a in a marine environment, but you got to know that you you know you got to have air and you got to fire uh, to uh, make the with the compression and you got to fuel that uh, makes it run. So you have those elements and understanding how a combustion engine works is basically the starting point. We have to be able to teach you how it works in a boat and what those specific things are to our industry. So they have to have the trade skill. They have to be, uh, I'll say, humble or inquisitive. You have to know what you don't know. You have to know that you don't know everything. You have to really be teachable because we learn new things every day and we are in this field every day. But these boats teach us new things. And then you have to know how to get along. You know, you have to be able to, in our industry, there. Everybody's in customer service, right? Because a lot of times you're working on the boat, the customer's right there with you, or the captain's right there with you. You have to be comfortable in that environment, answering those questions and taking care that you're not making a mess so that the, the customer uh, can see that you know what you're doing. And you have to get along internally mm -hmm. because we may bring in a boat for a project that has 50 operations on it and mechanics, carpenters, air conditioning techs, they're all going to be working in that space trying to get their task done. So you have to be able to communicate with your fellow employees. I, I have come, I am convinced um, without a doubt the internal communication is the hardest. In a company where people are really qualified and capable, skilled, their ability when I say they, me being one of them, mm -hmm. <laughs> but all of the people who work here, our ability to talk to each other, solve problems together, deal with those expectations uh, is is how we're going to be successful. Um, it's uh, kind of challenging to me to find the people who can recognize that and see that as actually a good thing. I always say, you're going to bunt heads. You know, you, if you really believe what you're doing and what you're doing strongly and somebody else in the company really believes in what they're doing strongly, you're going to butt heads. It's almost impossible not to have a little bit of conflict. 
but it's the ability to resolve that conflict that makes the workflow, you know, that gets things done. And if we do that well, we tend to have great outcomes on the boats. We have enough examples of not being successful that we got to learn from our mistakes too. And then you got people who come from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You have people who have, like you said, been an apprentice for five years, worked on boats for the last 20. And I can imagine you have a 25-year-old fresh out of trade school coming in and there's a conflict of personality there that there's can't be resolved just immediately, but it has to be learned right. over time. Yeah, that young, and it could be 18, 19-year-old. I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, 25 would be almost old for some of our <laughs> apprentices that we've had recently. But it's great because as long as they come in and they realize what they don't know, that's that, that humility part, that they are going to learn a tremendous amount from this lead uh, mechanic or, you know, trades craftsman who's with them, then they can... Man, the guys who come in here like a sponge just absorb that knowledge and grow quickly. Um, they, again, we have the opposite example of somebody who comes in here and if they feel like they know everything and they don't need to be taught, then they're going to have a hard time growing in our company because it's so much to learn. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very intricate process too where you take people who have done it for a while and the new technology that's out there. Mm-hmm. So you can't really know it all, and it's changing daily. Right. And the, the younger people do bring that. You know, they bring a readiness uh, to, to embrace that newer technology, which is great. That's really good for us to have, you know, some people who don't look at this as all bad news. Oh, my gosh, there's something new. Oh, my gosh, it's more like, hey, man, there's something new. It's awesome. Let's try it. And, you know, over the last 24 years, what would you say is the biggest difference in terms of technology? Because we have boats that are now have a sonar that shoots out from underneath it. We have, you know, tuna tubes hooked up to the back of the transom. What's been that biggest change over the last 24 years with these big sport fishing boats? Well, so when I was starting... Believe it or not, marine air conditioning was the big change. Like boats that you, almost all boats had windows that you opened, right? I mean, you would open window and let a breeze in. And now almost all boats have no openable window. I mean, if you want a breeze, you have to open the aft, you know, a door, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's almost no boats being built today with screen windows. Uh, that was common. So that, that was huge. Um, the uh, just let's talk about engine horsepower and range. You know, the on the outboard side, you know, the 150, 150 horsepower engine was the greatest uh, thing that was built in in the late nineties, and to see four hundred, five hundred, six hundred horsepower engines and you know, three, four, five, six of them on the back of these boats. So this, the speed and the range that that creates for the vessel. On the diesel side, you know, we see uh, 2,400 horsepower, 2,600 horsepower on the, um, you know, in one power package. 
So you have the ability for a big boat to go so much faster and go further in terms of their fishing. And then, of course, the technology pieces, you know, picked up with the gyro stabilization, changed the expectation of the fishermen significantly. You know, you could go fishing without having to worry about seasickness, and you can use your boat so much more uh, in that. And then, yeah, the fishing technology, the electronics, you can almost, you know, they call it video game fishing now. You tag the fish, you can see so well, so far down, and you're, you're then fishing for a specific fish as opposed to trolling, covering ground. So some of those uh, changes, um, certainly our ability to react to those and be able to deliver the customers what they want. While at the same time, you know, there's 40 and 50 year old boats floating around out there that people come in here and they expect us to be able to work on as well. So we embrace that challenge. Uh, we want to be the company that keeps up with that new technology, but at the same time, we also want our customers who enjoy that kind of craftsmanship of an older boat to be comfortable coming in here as well. And when we talk about these big sport fishing boats, what would be a routine process to keep one of them running for an entire tournament season? Is it how many times do they come in for service during tournament season? Are you having any quick turnaround? Because I'm really intrigued that they can travel from Louisiana all the way down to um, Panama City Beach. They're fishing an event almost every single weekend. Mm -hmm. Everything's fully operational. Some of these guys are running these engines to the peak that they can be ran. What does it take to keep one of these in top condition to fish this tournament circuit on the Gulf? Well, certainly uh, a really professional captain's a huge part of that because their job is to keep track of those maintenance items. So it starts with having a great team of, of, you know, working for the owner. But beyond that, then you just get into all of those uh, preventive maintenance issues where you know what your schedule is for your engine oil changes or what's recommended by the manufacturer in terms of your bigger services, uh, typically an annual haul out to deal with driveline issues, bottom paint, anything that you do, you know, for your through hauls, allowing for the uh, seawater to come into, into the vessel, do the cooling, your air conditioning systems, water maker, I mean, it, it, whatever you have on that boat has a maintenance schedule. If you keep up with a maintenance schedule, you have your best opportunity to have a, a season that you don't have problems. The thing that you got to remember, <laughs> I mean, it's hard enough if these boats are putting hours on them in a straight line, right? They're basically running all these distances. But as soon as they hook into a fish, now the boat's going backwards or it's veering to the side. Or you got people leaping all over it. You got however many hundreds of pounds on the other end of that line that is trying to get away, right? So that boat has to react to that. So all of that exercise of fishing, which is what they absolutely love, is going to cause some issues. I mean, you 
like I said, if you were running a boat in a straight line over time, you could probably do 90% of the PM work and not have issues or not have issues with 90% of the operating systems. But the act of fishing itself and the, the stress that it puts on the, on the vessel, there's just going to be some things that pop up during the season, which is why you really need a great relationship with your service providers. You know, the people that have a, have a great relationship with us, we respond as quickly as we can. They may have a electronics company that is the one that responds to those issues. They may have a, you know, somebody else that does all their canvas work or, you know, those issues, but really a great relationship with a yard where you can get things turned quickly will, will keep you, you, there's almost no way to do what they do and have no issues. So you want to be prepared to deal with those issues. And whether it's Saunders Yacht Works or another boat yard, I always tell people I'm a big believer in loyalty. If somebody is taking care of you and doing what you need, by all means, keep going there. But if you need help and you're not getting that, give us a chance. And so to answer your question, you do all the preventive maintenance things that you have on your list to get ready for your campaign or your season. And then you have support to help you as you go through the year. And, and then you have a chance. There's no guarantees, but because of the, it, it, the, the variable is all of this happens on salt water, right? I was in an a, um, a unfortunate court case, but this expert um, mentioned this in the, um, in the deposition about a boat. He said, if a boat lives in the water, even when it's parked, it's still moving. The never the boat never stops interacting with the environment unless it's on dry dock, right? So all these boats that stay in slips have a continuous interaction with their environment, and it requires service. It requires attention to detail. Some of these captains are amazing at what they get done and get prepared for, so that they can anticipate, you know, what some of the issues are going to be. And um, and as the future comes up. What do you think is going to be the most important thing for, or the most important challenge for your boatyard to address as we get bigger, faster, quicker? Um, what's something that you can see or put a finger on that you want to start working towards, or you're already working towards right now to stay ahead of that curve? Well, I mean, from an industry standpoint, the, the challenge of conservation continues to be giant, right? So for all of us that enjoy the environment of fishing and the, the being near the water, making sure the water's clean, making sure the fish stock is healthy. So all of that management is critical. From an industry standpoint, from a maintenance side, it's people. So making sure that I'm looking for the right people, getting the right people on board that are willing to meet those challenges. I don't, uh, I don't know enough about the technology to say it's going to be this one thing, but mm -hmm. as long as the people enjoy themselves on the water, they're going to want more services on the water, right? So the connectedness, you know, you used to go boating to get away from it all. Now they all expect to be able to download Netflix 
You know what I mean? And have the kids <laughs> watching streaming in the, or, or watching the football game or being able to get email or text from their office while they're on the boat. So all of that becomes a, a, a technological demand on that boat to be able to provide that service. So I'd, I look for more of that, not less, right? So um, from a communication standpoint, there's more communication going to be expected on the vessels. I don't know uh, what the it used to be. The captains around here would say, you know, a 60-foot boat is really the best boat to fight a fish. So you were not going to see these larger boats. Well, range has become so important to these guys. If you want a 90-foot boat, the primary reason why you're going with that bigger boat is you have more fuel capacity. So, And they've proven you can fight that fish on any size sport fisher as long as you have the equipment. So I think that's going to continue to be. Um, as the power plants turn more to electric, I think that's something that we just have to keep an eye on. It's not... It's a funny thing with, with boats. Right now, you, we're seeing this big changeover in, in vehicles. But on boats, they lack some of the power regeneration that's going on with the electric vehicles. So without a braking system, for instance, you don't get the kinetic energy boost that you get in a car that's electric for the charging. Um, you also have issues in terms of the, um, the, the technology for, um, for recharging. So with a boat and uh, the power demand, until they figure out a battery or a storage system that's going to allow for a more aggressive use and drain of it. I mean, you can't have your batteries go dead in the middle of fighting a fish, right? And that demand, oh, 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 you can imagine that coming from electricity. So I don't know how quickly we're going to get to that in boats, but I think it's coming. Um, from our standpoint as a company, we just want to keep an eye on it. We're not going to be the one that pushes the technology we're more reactionary. As a service company, we want to make sure we can take care of it. But the builders and the innovation that happens on the side of the people that are doing the, the construction and design is something we're going to keep a close eye on. So when that boat comes into service, we can know that we can take care of it. So I don't know if I answered your question. I don't know what it is, but we're going to be ready for it and watching for it. That is awesome because I know there's – with as many changes of boats getting bigger, the fuel capacity is getting bigger, you guys will react as quick as you can to when that specific moment in time happens. And especially, I mean, as you brought up, I wasn't even thinking about electric, but that's a great point. We've got electric outboards coming out. Um, it'll, won't be, it'll be only a matter of time until you can put that into something bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And that'll be quite a unique challenge for you guys. Oh yeah, it will. I, I think it's. A, I do think the combustion engine is going to stay alive longer in marine, almost than any other application, because some of those challenges that, that a boat faces. We'll see. And, and I, I, the other thing is that's great about the modern outboard and diesel inboard engines is they are they do run so much cleaner than 
years ago that it's not as much of a, a carbon impact as it you know was when you were you know the carburetor run gas engines you know that smoked and you know you couldn't stand behind the exhaust pipe all of that used to be at a tournament when they started the engines for the boats to go out the black cloud of smoke would just hover over the top of everybody and you'd have to wait wait till the air cleared before you could see the boats leave we don't have any of that stuff anymore so there, there has been significant improvements in the combustion engines as well so that which is great it's great for the environment it's great for the enjoyment of the customer it's just a better experience for everybody i mean i remember taking my first trip to orange beach it would have been 1995 i was only three years old and we would go out on one of the red snapper charter boats Mm -hmm. over zeke's marina yeah and my mom specifically making comments about how she doesn't like the charter boats because of the diesel exhaust. Yeah, the black smoke, and you would, uh, it, yeah, if you sat on the transit, it would give you a headache after a while because of that, that, what they call the station wagon effect of that smell. Absolutely. Well, it's it's way better, obviously, today. So I hope she enjoys going out on them now. She does now. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, as you've, uh, as Saunders been built into a third generation family owned vis- family owned business what is your vision for the future um, to continue that so i always to people that ask me about running the company you know i went to my father-in-law i just wanted a job <laughs> In 1998, 1999, I was not actually looking at running the company. I wanted employment, and I really liked the, the company. Uh, as we grew together and he, his career uh, started to wind down, then, and, and I started to become more capable, it, it worked. Um, so I, I, I've always considered myself a placeholder. You know, I'm a son-in-law, and... Um, I'm just blessed to be here, but if the business can move to the fourth generation, then I will, you know, that's one of the things that I look for in, uh, you know, as, as something that would make my career successful. Now, I doesn't have to <laughs> realize that uh, even though I, I do have seven children, I'm not going to force any of them into this business. If they choose to, I think it would be a great opportunity for them. So, at, as I look towards the future, whether I'm preparing the business for the next generation of family or some other future, the challenge is still the same. I want to have a great team. And those people who are closer to Saunders know that when I started here, we had a really experienced middle management team. I'm just long-term guys with great careers. Um, and uh, and that was really the core of our business and wonderful uh, managers, very knowledgeable, all had been on tools at some point. But those guys have now moved to retirement. And so for the, about the past five years, I've been working very hard to get the next generation of that management team in place, find people that were either in our company or outside of our company that could come in and take on those roles with a different viewpoint that that younger mindset, but also 
the right teamwork. You had to have the right teamwork and the right culture in place. So we're about 80% of the way there in terms of our management transition. And and I'm very comfortable with the fact that, like I said, I'm, I'm either preparing this business for the next generation of family or some other future right now i'm i'm in no hurry to uh, for it not to be a family business I'm, I'm proud of what we've built here the i think that i know my father-in-law is proud because he tells me and i think that our founder would also be proud of what we've built from from an integrity standpoint we still believe in that baker's dozen you know we're going to give a little bit more than the next company, and we're going to be better at service. You know, we, we consider service the way that we approach our relationship with each other. We're going to serve each other. We're going to serve our customers. We're going to serve our community. That being a service business runs throughout. I always say that's our mission. We want to provide extraordinary service. So as long as Saunders Yacht Works is doing that going in the future, then I'm doing my job. And I'm just can't speak highly enough of our team. Our team and our ability to work together is is why we can do what we do. And, you know, I can't wait to see that growth and to see Saunders continue to expand. And I know over the last three years, I've run into you at multiple events. And, you know, after having this podcast, I'm <laughs> really excited now that I have the background knowledge to ask follow-up questions every time that I run into you now. What's the guy, who's that guy over there with the knives? That's you know? right. Well, so, yeah, I think at Emerald Coast uh, in Sandessa was the first time we met, and I love the enthusiasm and the energy and your, you know, that you bring to, to this industry. It's great. It's wonderful. So. And we're trying to grow it as well as you are. If we can awesome. have a place this size and uh, be have a name like Saunders, we've, we've done something right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're part of the industry, Stephen. It's really, it's really awesome to see your company here. Thank you, John. Thank you.